Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We start with the recommendation out of the BC legislature yesterday. Get rid of the RCMP in BC. Replace them with a new provincial police force. This was the recommendation from an all-party committee of the legislature yesterday. Have a listen to this report here now from Global News reporter Richard Zussman. An all-party committee unanimously calling for the province to move on from the RCMP policing day-to-day in communities to be replaced by a provincial police force. The committee is suggesting taking the smaller municipal forces and turning it into a larger regional police force. We've been advocating this for quite some time. It depends how the amalgamation is done, and it's important to use the term amalgamation rather than quitting one entity and going to a new entity. Okay, let's discuss this idea now. This is huge, getting rid of the RCMP, moving to a provincial police force. That would be a major overhaul of policing in our province. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Rob Ferrer. Rob is with the National Police Federation, which is the union that represents RCMP officers in B.C. and Canada. Rob, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. Hey, Rob, what went through your mind when you heard this recommendation, get rid of the Mounties in B.C.? Uh, um, well, initially, it was uh, it was quite a surprise. Uh, you know, we had had some input in... Uh, into that committee um, and a lot of what we suggested and, and if you go through the report there's a number of places where the National Police Federation is is quoted and some of the areas that we really were were discussing is the the addiction the addiction problem in the province and mental health resources which we very much so so those aspects of the report we we agree with there there's a, a, a large lack of resources in that area um, as for the the sort of the sweeping change portion, um, I think it's it's uh, a little bit early. There are a number of things that we support, but obviously not that one. Yeah. So you say you were surprised. You had had input into this committee's work. So you say you were surprised when you saw that recommendation actually get rid of the RCMP. That surprised you. That surprised me. There's a number of things you know in there that it, that it speaks about as as some of the reasons and. Um, one of them being that the Ottawa-based decision making, and you know, I think it's a it's a pretty fashionable criticism, but it's not necessarily accurate. Each community, while there's not technical police boards, you know, I've worked in a number of these communities around the province, and while there's not a technical police board, we absolutely meet. I was a unit commander; we met with the the local communities, set priorities with them. There's a, a a process called the annual performance plan for the smaller communities, larger larger communities do a strategic plan, and those are set in consultation with the communities as to what we're going right. to do in terms of of policing priorities. So, so the idea that it's it's based out of Ottawa, I, I can tell you, working throughout the communities, um, never 
ever was I told what my priority is going to be in a local community out of Ottawa. So there are some some things in the report that I think would take a little bit more um, communication on. So that was one of the points I just wanted to to make that it, yeah. you know it's easy to say, but it's not necessarily accurate. Speaking of Rob Ferrer, he's with the RCMP Police Officers Union. Uh, yeah, the recommendation here to get rid of the Mounties in BC, the primary explanation for that in this report, which I'm looking at right now, is they say that would improve local accountability and decision-making and connection to the community. So that sort of goes to the heart of what you're talking about there. This committee seems to think that the RCMP doesn't have enough local accountability. There's not enough local input into decisions. You're disputing that? Yes, I am. Um, you know, we certainly certainly do. We, you know, I, I've met myself countless times with, with mayors and councils and discussed what their specific priorities would be. You know, there are some other areas that I think we, we absolutely agree with, with the committee, um, including mental health resources you know as an example in a lot of small communities there really is no other resources from the government aside from the police officers right so there's no if you go north of the north of Kamloops in the province there's almost no psychologists for example so just the access so when they talk about you know marginalized people we we agree that there certainly are and some of those systemic problems but but I think we we perhaps differ on what the the root cause of those are and our officers are, are there in all these communities to assist. And there are often no other resources, period, to assist with addictions, to assist with opioid crisis, housing, you know, all of these type of issues, um, which, which end up with a downstream effect and police get involved. But the police aren't necessarily the societal fix. How would you describe the level of service and professionalism of the RCMP in British Columbia right now in the communities where they're pol- providing police services? Because when you take a look at this report, which recommends getting rid of the RCMP, it's it's quite critical. It says that if you brought in a provincial police force, it says you would have better service, better training, better oversight, standards, and policies would be more consistent across the province. It, could you talk to that? Like, how, how do you think, like, do you think that those... If we, if we judge the RCMP and those standards, service, training, oversight, what would you say about the RCMP and the way it's operating in the province right now? And, and do, you think it's, do you think it is broken and needs to be replaced? Well, there's, you know, I don't want to get, get too technical. And, you know, I, I have to admit, obviously, I'd be somewhat biased having been a police officer with the RCMP for 21 years. But I think when you, you know, sort of cut through that, um, there has been, we've done a bunch of polling with, with, uh, Polera most recently over the last number of years and and overall the RCMP rates very highly um, but interestingly we rate higher in the communities that we serve so that's to say that that we are over 70 percent supported uh, overall in the province but in the communities we serve that goes up to 75 percent so the people that we serve are happier than those that we don't by us. So I think that is telling about the job our officers are doing day in and day out in a very trying time in policing yeah. and, and just a job that is very challenging. So I would say so do you, on, on so that do you, piece, we do well. Do you think, therefore, that the people of BC, especially in the communities where the RCMP provides these services, that they would want to keep 
the RCMP, like if you put this to a referendum in these communities, do you think they would vote to keep the RCMP or bring in a new police service? Like, what's your gut feeling on it? Well, my, my gut feeling, you know, I've got to base it somewhat off, off the polling that, that 75% are happy. Uh, so, so from that, I would have to say that they would, they would support us since they, you know, on those questions, they have said that they do support us. I do want to talk a little bit on the accountability piece. You sure. know, all police officers in the province, be it Nelson, uh, Port Moody, or RCMP anywhere, are, are governed for civilian oversight by the IAO, right? The Independent Investigations yeah. Office. It doesn't matter what police force you are in the province. They are the civilian oversight uh, for use of force. So we already have that same accountability. You know, the RCMP officers also have the CRCC, which is a, uh, a, a body that, that does sort of lower level, not necessarily use of force, but if someone's rude, right. for example. Um, how do, how do you think... Hey, Rob, last question for you. How do you think individual RCMP officers are feeling this morning after hearing this report saying that this committee, all party committee of the legislature, unanimous recommendation, get rid of the RCMP, bring in a new police force. What do you think Mounties are saying and thinking and feeling about that? Well, those that I've spoken to, and there's been a number of reached out to me, um, you know, they, they're not happy about it. Um, You know, they work, very hard um as as we've talked a number of times the 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 pressure on policing generally is very high right now it's it's difficult to recruit in policing right now um you know and and to read some of there's there's some language in in the report that's that's pretty harsh um you know and they do talk about that it's not the individual members and i point that out that this this report does not speak about individual members they so i i point out to the members but you know, it's, it's hard not to, when you have given your career to service to the people of the province, it's hard not to take it a bit personal. Um, I would just, I think I would just say that. Rob, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Mike. Have a good day. Okay, thank you. Rob Ferrer there. He is with the Police Officers Union. Just taking a look at the latest uh, road blockades by environmental protesters is almost seems to happen on a daily basis now we've seen the ironworkers bridge blocked multiple times here in the last few weeks the trans canada highway has been blocked the trans canada blocked again this morning on the island so this happened near nanaimo snarling traffic there this morning the protesters say they are concerned about climate change they want to stop old growth logging in british columbia I mean, when you get stuck behind these blockades, though, uh, you can push some people over the top. Now, the other day when the ironworkers was blocked, several people got out of their vehicles that took matters into their own hands, started dragging some of the protesters away. Take a listen to this guy. This guy is trying to get his kids somewhere. Have a listen to what he said to them. I got kids in the car that are sick. Get the f*** out of the road. Yeah, he's got kids in the car who are sick. Get out of the road. Tanya Vizantine, spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department, says, look, don't be a vigilante in these situations. Don't get out of your car and take action yourself. Here's what she had to say about it. Our tolerance level is much lower. Uh, We know the public is very frustrated and their tolerance level is low and therefore we will be responding quicker. We don't encourage that type of behavior. Um, We don't encourage people to take matters into their own hands, no matter how frustrated you are. 
Police keeping a closer eye on it, though. When we saw the iron workers get blocked just the other day, police moved in very, very quickly. So they are watching. They are watching here now for these blockades, and they will move in quickly to break them up when they do happen now, especially on these major commuter uh, routes for sure. Also, police now, at least, and at least one case, seized the vehicles of some of the protesters under bc civil forfeiture law i know for a fact though that the protesters have stopped bringing their own vehicles to the blockade sites though you know they get wise to this stuff so yeah they leave their own vehicles at home now is in case they get seized by the cops why are they doing it zane hack he's one of the leaders of the blockades he's been arrested multiple times here's what he told me we've been writing letters for 30 years we've been signing petitions for 30 years we've been doing marches for 30 years and nothing has happened, right? Carbon emissions have gone up by 60%. And our demand is very minor. And we're nonviolently disrupting the public. by engage- And in doing so, we're engaging the public in the debate that we're literally faced with the annihilation of the human race. Okay. The backlash growing, though, against the blockades. Brand new petition drive just out. Cleartheroad.ca is where people are being encouraged to sign a petition opposing the blockaders. Let's talk to the creator of the petition campaign, Stuart Muir, Green Growth BC. Stuart, thank you for coming on. Hey, Mike, thank you very much. What do you think of these blockades? Well, we have a fundamental right in this country that's protected in law to be able to go about our business. Uh, in, In the criminal code, it's it's an offense to obstruct the public in the exercise or enjoyment of any right that is common to all the subjects of Her Majesty in Canada. That's reading from the law. It's a, it's a criminal offense to block or obstruct a highway. Literally, that's a criminal offense. There are strong powers that the police have, and I appreciate they've been upping their game a little bit, but they have not been using their powers. What do you want them to do? Well, what we're asking is that they move quicker. They be ready for these these acts that uh, create danger to the public. You know, we don't want to see uh, motorists get so frustrated they're causing uh, harm to the protesters. That you know, we certainly don't want that. And they need to stand down on the protest so that uh, people can get to school, get their kids home if they're sick, like that gentleman we heard from. And so what we're doing is an information campaign at cleartheroad.ca where people can sign up to get information about their legal rights. And we're also going to, as the number of uh, signatures grows, and I hope everybody goes there to cleartheroad.ca and signs up, we'll be submitting your names as a a show of public support for being uh, better and faster in exercising the, the criminal code where it applies. How many people have signed the petition so far? Well, it just launched yesterday, and there's last count, I think there's about 100, which is, which is great. It, it's going to take a while to take off. We want to get to 1,000 before we start uh, you know, providing it to those local civic officials because cities have, uh, um, I think, the first impact. It, it obstructs business in local communities, and that's bad. And also, we'll let the police chiefs know as well, and the RCMP. Okay, speaking of Stuart Muir, Cleartheroad.ca is the petition site against the environmental blockaders. I mean, you could sign up, uh, you could sign up a million people on that petition, and it probably wouldn't stop them from blocking the roads, though, right? Yeah. Well, the, the other frustrating thing is that the issue that they're 
out there protesting on is not even a legit issue. I mean, this is, the current NDP government has made reforms in forestry that have actually made the forest industry quite upset. They they think it's too far. And the environmentalists are, are here saying, oh, nothing's happened. Um, you know, you had a, a quote you just aired that is not lined up with the reality that I see. We've seen uh, legislation and changes and practices. We've also seen the industry actually over the years just get better and better all the time. And forestry is such an important industry. And it's not as if there's a lack of old growth right now. Um, I've done the numbers here for every person who lives in BC. If you have a mental image of Rogers Arena, just picture that in downtown Vancouver. That's how much old growth is in protected areas for every single resident. You know, so, you know, five million times the footprint of Rogers Arena is how much protected old growth there is already. Okay, so it's not as if it's going anywhere. You're, uh, Stuart, you're with a group called Green Growth BC on this issue. What is yeah. the, So this is like what, a logging industry initiative? This is uh, forest professionals, individuals. It's not uh, backed by industry. It's, it's those who care about having communities. Right now, the forest industry has, um, there, there's more than 100 different occupations that contribute to logging, even the single tree. All these touch points along the way, when that tree is, is measured, it's cultivated, it has to be planted too. And all those things, it's such an important part of our lives in BC. It always has been. And we need that to be part of our ongoing success because the world needs renewable products. People like wood. It's, it's a natural product. It's a very good thing. Everyone wants it in their homes as compared to other, other substances they could have to build their homes with or put on their floors and so on. Um, so let's make sure we're doing it responsibly and continue to, to improve it. So with Green Growth BC, and there's a website for that, we've got a lot of the information that will allow people to examine the facts. And, you know, yesterday there was a speech made by the forest minister. I think she made a very good point. There's polarization on this issue. There's strong views on one side, yeah. strong views on the other side. You know, as usual, the answer to this kind of thing is, usually, you know, it's to be found somewhere in the middle. And that's kind of where we're coming at it from. Let's look at the facts. You Let's heard, examine it. We heard from the leader of these blockades, Stuart, say that this is all about climate change and the threat to the planet. And I know you are not a, a climate change denier that climate change is real and it's caused by human beings. Correct? Well, absolutely it is. Yes, it is real. Yeah. So, so, when, so, when they say, so what is the answer to that? Like if it's, I guess this group is saying, oh, we've got to save the planet. We've got to stop cutting the trees down. We have to stop the oil and, oil and gas development. How do you respond to that argument? Well, when they, like they're blocking of traffic on highways to old growth specifically. Let's talk about that a little bit. The, you know, it's interesting to me that there are large parts of British Columbia, Columbia where you have uh, climate change affected forests, including where there's pine beetle kill and you have standing timber. A lot of that has been cleared out and replanted, but there's still areas, there's, there's whole towns like Mackenzie that are in a very a, a tinder dry area of forest because of climate change. And if they don't have active forestry to uh, thin out the the dying trees or the dry trees or also the the decaying trees. I mean, one thing with old trees is they're, you know, kind of like people. They grow old and eventually they do die. Um, some of them grow big and those are the ones on the postcards that we all love, those giants. But most trees aren't like that. And so you have whole areas of the province w which are actually in danger from wildfires 
because we have artificially protected them from natural wildfires over many decades. We need forestry to be part of sustainability and managing climate change. And so stating the very opposite, that we should stop all forestry, is actually going to endanger people and ecosystems. Okay, here we go now with the art bust that has shocked and stunned the Canadian art world. Police in Saanich near Victoria say they have recovered thousands of pieces of original artwork worth tens of millions of dollars. This happened after executing search warrants at three separate storage facilities. The recovered artwork includes paintings by the iconic BC artist Emily Carr, charges of fraud and false pretense being recommended in this case. Let's discuss now with my guest, Constable Marcus Anastasiades. He is a spokesperson for the Saanich Police Department. Constable, thank you for coming on here today. Of course. Okay, this is an amazing story. How did this all begin? Like, you tell me the story here. How did you guys get in, uh, get, uh, get into this investigation? Yeah, certainly. I mean, it started very uh, with just a, a small complaint back on April 11th when uh, an art owner living in Saanich reported that they had um, entrusted a local art dealer with four pieces of fine art for consignment and then the potential sale at an art gallery in Oak Bay. Now, the pieces, uh, like you mentioned, were uh, three Emily Cars and one David Blackwood, um, both renowned Canadian artists. And uh, the intention was uh, for the art dealer to either consign them or look to sell them in the future. However, the uh, the owner of the artwork uh, noticed that the gallery had closed down a few weeks afterwards, and then trying to reach out and contact the art dealer, attempts were, were cold, uh, there were unanswered calls, so they became very suspicious about their precious art, and they contacted us to investigate. Wow, okay, that's incredible. We, Go ahead, yeah, continue. So, yeah, so we eventually began to look into it, uh, just on, on the surface of it. And then once we, we, we got into it a bit deeper, we uncovered that there were several other uh, art owners in a similar position that uh, came forward and that we were able to contact uh, that have had been experiencing the same uh, kind of cold communication, uh, no communication whatsoever, and had entrusted this art dealer with, with this, these pieces of work. Okay, tell me about the search warrant. So you, did you guys go in front of a judge here to get these search warrants, and then you went and took a look in these storage facilities? Yeah, absolutely. You know, after speaking to the art owners uh, about their artwork and, and, and what was transpiring, there seemed to be quite a pattern, and that was consistent with uh, a fraud investigation. So uh, quickly, the detectives put together three search warrants at different facilities in Saanich, Oak Bay, and Langford here on the island and executed those in the, the preceding days, which uncovered, I believe, the first one was 600 pieces of art followed by 100 pieces of art and then just over 300 pieces of artwork. So we're, we're just over 1,000 pieces of, of fine art, and I can ensure you that uh, the artwork is from you know Canadian artists very well known have a high dollar value and uh, certainly well, we were very shocked of how this, uh, this this file grew and evolved into what it uh, what it is today 
Yeah, I'm sure the the police at the police at the Saanich are more used to dealing with stolen cars or other type of stolen property. But man, oh man, this is a lot of artwork here. Have, have you ever seen a case like this before? No, you know, we were talking about that uh, last week or earlier early this week, just about the magnitude and scope of this investigation. Not only are the pieces of artwork very valuable, we're talking tens of millions of dollars, but uh, this, just the, the, the sheer volume of the art, uh, over 1,000 pieces, has created obviously some logistical um, uh, considerations, and uh, we're dealing with art, so it's very fragile. We have to ensure that it's transported and stored and, and dealt with, handled with uh, the utmost care, and we did hire professionals to assist that. Our investigation, while it is a criminal investigation regarding a false fraud and false pretense charges, uh, at this stage uh, in the investigation, we're, we're looking to reunite and um, all of the artwork, as, as hopefully all of it, to the uh, either the artists, the owners, or people that have are representatives of these artists, so they can have their precious art back. Speaking to Constable Marcus Anastasiotis, Saanich Police Department, about this amazing recovery of artwork here. So you mentioned that there are charges being recommended here. So no charges yet. Has there have there has there been an arrest here? Yes. Yeah, so on April twenty first, we did make an arrest. Uh, we arrested uh, the art dealer, uh, who was later released through several conditions and a future court date. Uh, we are preparing a uh, report to Crown Council recommending charges. Uh, for multiple counts of fraud and false pretense. However, these charges have not been uh, sworn in court, hence why we're not releasing the name of the art dealer nor the gallery involved. Uh, in, in just a general term, to kind of summarize what we understand was happening, was that the dealer was taking art from people with the intention of consigning or appraising the art, but then later ceasing all contact, all the while selling the art, without reimbursing the owners or the artists. Wow. How many pieces of artwork were sold? Do you have any idea? You know, that uh, the investigation is ongoing, and that's part of uh, one aspect of the investigation. Uh, we hope that by going public with the information, we can not only reunite the owners with their art, but also um, people that have sold or bought art from the gallery or this particular art dealer will come forward and provide information to us. And we have set up a dedicated email to people to come forward and, and identify themselves to us. What happens if someone has bought some of these paintings and now it's hanging on their wall in their home somewhere? How do you recover, recover that? Will they be required to re return the artwork or what about the money they paid for the art? How are you going to handle all that? Yeah, those are those are great questions, and I, I I don't have the specific answers for for that right at this moment. However, you know I can tell you that we encourage those people to come forward and let us know. It does form part of the the broad investigation, and um, any any uh, dealings with the financial ramifications of of art, the selling or buying of it, uh, I would imagine will be handled in a civil matter, aside from the criminal component that we're investigating. So. Again, we encourage anyone that has information or uh, direct uh, contact with the art dealer or art gallery to, to come forward. The email address is quite simple. It's art at sanchpolice.ca. So uh, we have people standing by, and we know we've been getting inundated with emails already. So wow. uh, we know that the messaging is working. 
Wow, that's that's incredible. What happens to all this artwork now? You've seized thousands of different pieces of artwork uh, from three locations. What happens to all the art now? Where are you keeping it? Well, we're keeping it in a secure location. Again, it's all packaged, um, boxed, uh, handled with care. That took quite a quite a bit of time to ensure that it was transported safely and finding a location that was secure. Uh, and you know, t- took took a lot of uh, resourcing. However. And they are being um, handled with the utmost care. And even since yesterday, we've been able to start returning some of the art um, when people heard about the the messaging. So uh, it's off to a good start, and I can tell you that. Uh, the Emily Cars and the Bla- uh, David Blackwood were returned to the owner uh, that originally made the complaint in early April. So um, things are things are good. We know that these pieces of art are, are holding intrinsic um, emotional value to many people, the artists themselves and people that own the art or the families of artists that have since passed away. So we're doing everything we can and we, we we're hoping to return every single last piece uh, of this fine art. Okay, that's an amazing case. Is there any indication that any of this artwork, you mentioned that some of it had been sold and there could be a challenge there in that component. Is there any indication that any of this art has, has left the country, like was sold to foreign buyers and now it's not in Canada anymore? Uh, I, I don't. I don't know. That's a good, that's a great question. Um, um, you know, there's there's people that are working uh, in our investigative investigative section that are handling all of that. It's quite the the ledger book that uh, they've accumulated and a tracking system that they've developed to to track each piece. Um, and uh, you know, again, we're we're working with with everyone that's coming forward and trying to deal with this uh, the best we can. We have a great team of investigators and support staff that are helping with this file. It's it's one of the, if not the largest files um, from a monetary value that we've dealt with in at least 30 years. Um, wow. I, can, I can safely say that. So for the department, um, it's one that we're, we're, we're certainly taking seriously. But again, it's uh, we're at this stage in the investigation. We're, we're simply trying to reunite all the owners and artists with their, their work. Well, it's an amazing case. Thanks a lot for coming on to talk about it today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. You bet. Thanks for the, spreading the word. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the threats to the Canadian economy now. Inflation is up, interest rates on the rise, the broken supply chain, the war in Ukraine injecting even more uncertainty. Is Canada heading to a recession? Check out south of the border, the U.S. economy shrank by 1.4% in the first quarter. Those numbers out yesterday. Have a listen to this. This is Jeff Rubin, the former chief economist, CIBC World Markets, talking about this. Deutsche Bank had earlier in the year been forecasting a mild recession. They've revised that outlook and are now calling for a major recession. I have to agree with that outlook. And of course, it probably goes without saying that that outlook is equally valid for the Canadian economy as it is for the American economy. 
Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Moshe Lander, Senior Lecturer in Economics, Concordia University. Moshe, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. What, what is your read of this economy right now? Are we going in the wrong direction? Yep. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. 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 We're, we're, we're heading for a recession. I, I don't know that it's going to be necessarily a severe recession, uh, but yeah, there, there's definitely a correction that needs to take place in this economy, and I think it's going to happen with the interest rate increases coming in the next six months. Right, and the definition of a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth, right? Yeah, that's the technical definition, right? But you could imagine that if we had, say, negative growth in alternating quarters and mild growth in the opposite quarters, it's not a technical recession, but it's going to feel like it. So I don't know that necessarily we need to watch for two consecutive quarters of negative growth. It's merely just a matter of the economy is going to see a correction, whether that's through the stock market, housing market, goods market. Uh, something's coming, uh, and it's not going to feel good. Yeah. Yeah, it sure feels that way. Do you think the economy's in recession right now, or is this something that's coming down the road? You know, I, I think that we're going in the wrong direction right now. So again, if we're going to live by the technical definition of have we had two consecutive quarters of negative growth? No. But are we on our way to two consecutive quarters of negative growth? Yeah, I think we're certainly moving in that direction. So, uh, you know, the thing with recessions is usually they're identified after they've started, uh, rather than while they're actually happening. So even if we are in a recession now, we probably wouldn't know about it officially until, say, September. It's such a weird economy right now. We've got all these problems that we discussed, but you take a look at the unemployment rate in the country. The unemployment is low. It's almost feels like we're at full employment. Yeah, and so it's, it's kind of a mix of uh, previous recessions. And that's the thing with recessions, is that they always show differently. So, you know, uh, your listeners... Uh, some of them that are, are old enough will remember, say, the oil shocks in the 1970s and the way that that created a particularly nasty recession. We're kind of seeing that right now, as you said, in the lead-in with things like supply chain problems and stuff like that. But on the other side, we also have that this burst of demand that's being unleashed by consumers uh, that are wanting to kind of get their lives back as COVID becomes less of an economics issue. And so, you know, these two effects together are creating this weird sort of storm where the economy looks like it's strong on some indicators, but weak on others. And yeah. that's why the Bank of Canada is struggling to say, well, what do we do? Yeah, no, it is really weird. When you take a look south of the border, we get those GDP numbers out of the United States, the economy there shrinking in the last quarter. Is that a, another indicator that Canada is heading to the same, same direction? Yeah, you know, there's the old joke that the U.S. sneezes and Canada gets a cold, right? And so if, if they're trending down, they are a major trading partner with us. And as long as there aren't convoys blocking the border, uh, the fact is that if they find that they're not as interested in buying goods and services, part of that spills over that they don't want to buy our goods and services. That will affect us. Speaking of Moshe Lander, Concordia University, what is the biggest problem here? Is it inflation? Yeah, um, inflation is certainly the big one that the Bank of Canada has now decided that they want to wrestle with. And so their main lever is by increasing interest rates. And so as they drive those up, and the, the governor of the Bank of Canada said that if you thought the half percentage point was shocking, uh, wait till you see what he does in June. That, that itself can create jitters. But yeah, when you start increasing interest rates, most Canadians are indebted. Uh, you start increasing the interest rate, that raises the cost of paying that debt. And either it's not going to get paid down or you're going to have to shift money away from spending to pay for your debt. 
uh, at some point, that that's a huge part of the economy then that's not spending the way they used to. Yeah, yeah. The inflation rate in Canada the highest in more than thirty years, but we're not alone, right? I mean, is this the inflation phenomenon? Is that global right now? It, it is, and it's it's partly in a sense because we're so integrated, which is a good thing. But our business cycles have been completely disrupted by wave after wave of COVID. And when I say wave after wave, the thing with waves is that, you know, Europe gets over one of their waves just as it hits here. And as soon as we get through it, another wave starts in Asia and it just gyrates through the world. So because our business cycles are all disconnected from each other right now, the fact is that it's really hard to reconnect that supply chain until things stabilize. And uh, nobody really knows when that's going to happen because we just keep seeing another wave after wave of COVID when we think it's finally done. Yeah, we just got a minute left here. Do you think that a, a recession, if it does hit, could be a mild recession or could it be something that is quite severe? It'll be more than mild, but what I will say in the last minute that I have is that a recession isn't necessarily a bad thing. There's a lot of dead weight in this economy. There's a lot of people that took on too much debt. There's a lot of businesses that are overstretched. There's a lot of refocusing that needs to be done, and a recession is the perfect time for that, and that's usually what allows us to bounce back stronger. So uh, let's not view it totally as a negative thing. There are some good that could come out of this. Okay, well, it's a, it's a bleak picture. I'm glad we ended on a bit more of an optimistic note. Thanks a lot for coming on. Appreciate it. Anytime. Let's talk about Canada's aging population now. Canadian seniors over the age of 85, it's the fastest growing age group in the country right now. The number of people over 85 has doubled since 2001. And take a look at the demographic trends here. That group set to triple in the years ahead. The silver tsunami, the baby boom bomb. A lot of people have heard these terms. Who will take care of all these aging seniors in the years ahead? A crisis in elder care, just one of the potential impacts. Have a listen to this. This is Laurent Martel. A director for the Centre of Demog Demographic Statistics Canada. Have a listen. Canada is at a very special place right now. We could even say uh, it's a date with demographic destiny, as the number and the share of people between age 55 and 64, who are close to retirement usually, has never been that high. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Bonnie Jean McDonald, Director of Financial Security Research at the National Institute on Aging at Toronto Metropolitan University. Bonnie Jean, thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. Yeah, so this baby boom generation is, is getting older. Can you explain how, how and why that could be a problem over the coming years yeah. here? Well, basically, we've known for decades that um, we have our baby boomers. <clears throat> they are a quarter of Canada's population. They've been just making their way through their life course, and they're now really at the brink of retirement, most of them. Uh, some have already made their way into retirement. So we've known this has been coming for a while. Um, what is less talked about is the fact that these people who are just facing retirement, they're really facing a little bit of a perfect storm because not only are the baby boomers the largest generation in history, they also have the longest life expectancies, so they're going to have to finance a much longer retirement. And on top of that, uh, we expect they're going to have much higher expenses in retirement, and that's because baby boomers were also 
um, another first. They're the first generation to have relatively few children in history, basically. And what a lot of Canadians don't understand is that long-term care in Canada, this is not a part of our Canada Health Act. Uh, it's not a guaranteed service like doctors and hospitals. So, in fact, historically, it's been really the family that's provided care for Canadians elderly. But when baby boomers really just don't have those children, uh, they'll have to either pay for these expenses from out of pocket that were traditionally done by the family or it will have to be picked up by the public's tab. And that's really where we're going to see a lot of uh, pressures on our senior social programs. Yeah. And how big will those pressures be, do you think, on, on our society and on our existing systems right now? Yeah. So it, what's interesting is, you know, during the pandemic, we the public became very aware um, of the real uh, deficiencies in the long-term care system that already exist. And these are our legacy problems. This didn't just start during the pandemic. Experts uh, like the NIA, we've been calling attention to these for a very long time, but the pandemic really did shine a light on it. What's a little bit strange was that during the pandemic, a lot of the problems were actually blamed on population aging. And that just is absolutely untrue. Uh, the oldest baby boomer is only age 76. So at age 76, the vast majority of people, they're perfectly healthy. And in fact, a lot of them are still working according to, to the newest data. So that's not when people need care. It's when they get into their 80s and the 90s. So that's really something we're going to be seeing over the next uh, the next decade. And in fact, uh, I did a very large um, study where we did take a very sophisticated computer-based uh, population model and we did project forward, well, what are these costs really going to look like? of the publicly funded nursing homes and home care. And what, what we found was basically over the next 30 years, the costs are going to rise from $22 billion to $71 billion, and that's in today's dollars. Uh, and these are all big numbers. But what it's really all saying is that, you know, if we think we have problems today, they really do pale in comparison to what's coming down the line if we don't prepare. Wow. And like you said, it's not like we didn't see this coming, right? Like I remember reading a, <laughs> no. reading a book like, 20 years ago called Boom, Bust, and Echo. You know, it was kind of like this has been on the, the radar screen for decades, so we knew it's coming. But do you believe that despite that, we, we're still not prepared? Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of this has to do with, um, you know, data and, and projections. So in other countries, they've actually projected the long-term care costs. And when they saw the numbers, they, they acted on them. So in Canada, for some reason, the public policy debate has always been around Social Security. So that'd be the Canada Pension Plan. So we actually have two federal governments who look at these numbers and project them and monitor them. And then we also have a lot of uh, focus on hospital care because it's part of the Canada Health Act. Long-term care, it's, you know, the data's awful. Um, the, it's in provincial jurisdiction. It was almost impossible to do this research. But once the numbers came out, it, they are very startling. And, uh, I think the more startling side of the story is the fact that uh, the financial system won't work, but the family system also will not work. Uh, we already know in the surveys that and people who, who are listening who have been through this, they know when you have to care for an elderly parent, it's a huge amount of work, and it puts a lot of pressure on families, financial as well as emotional and physical, and people have to take time off work, etc. Now, can you imagine that now twice the number of Canadians are going to be asked to do that, and they're going to, on average, have to increase their efforts by 40%. So that's an unsustainable system as well. So really, um, it's really time that Canada kind of follows what other OECD countries have done. And they've really made some major reforms to the way that they approach long-term care. Because really, we need to think about what's good for seniors. And also, how are we going to create a system that's actually going to work uh, 10 years from now? Yeah.
Yeah, boy, I think these issues are crucial that you're outlining there. Like when you take a look at other countries and how they're preparing for this and dealing with it, you mentioned some of those reforms necessary here. Like what would be at the top of the list of reforms that are required right now, would you say? At the absolute top of the list is basically to say that uh, Canadians don't want to age in nursing homes. Uh, Right now we have almost a disaster long-term care system where people are really left to fend for themselves until the situation gets so dire that they have to try to get into a nursing home and oftentimes they can't get into one. This is not the kind of system you want. It creates bad health outcomes. Uh, 100% of Canadians say they want to age at home. So what other countries have done is basically say, no, we want to put the supports in the homes, in the communities to help people age where number one is actually where they want to be. And number two, it actually leads to better health outcomes and it could be more, it should be more affordable over the long term. But this takes a long term vision because it does take more money now. But in the long run, it's a, a much more sustainable system to help yeah. help people to age in community. Yeah, the finances there are so so crucial, such a major issue here. I think there's a, a perception that the baby boom generation has got more money than some earlier generations, especially if they bought into the real estate market and they own a home. Do, do you think, is there any evidence to back that up? Like, are most boomers financially prepared for their retirement? They, they are definitely more prepared, um, kind of on average, at the time of retirement. But again, the problem is we're, we're under a completely different set of rules now. So in the past, people have been told, you know, you don't need as much money as you get older. People had more of these uh, gold-plated defined benefit pension plans. So there's barely been, and also interest rates were much higher. We're in a completely new world. And the biggest difference is the family support. Uh, In the past, again, family really, uh, the reason why it looked like people needed less money as they got older was because people were helping them for free. So when those people don't help you for free anymore, suddenly you do need money in your 90s. Uh, it's no longer, you know, we'll have to start paying for these services. So, yes, baby boomers have the money now, and they also have the wealth and the health to make good decisions. So my advice to people listening, please think of your retirement not as a 10-year game, but as a 30- and 40-year game, and suddenly the decisions that you make will be very different. Right, right. And how about maybe for some of the younger listeners listening, do you you have any advice on how for young adults, how maybe they could prepare themselves if they have to take care of aging parents yeah i just number one is for the people themselves going to retirement just to try to make decisions that actually protect their older selves so one great solution is that canadians do have the option to delay their canada pension plan uh they don't have to take it age 60 they can wait to age 70 unfortunately this has not been um there's a a lot of bad education in the public a lot of bad financial practices where only one percent of canadians take advantage of this and you're basically more than double your pension. You're going to get one of the best pensions in the world, and it would last until you die, and it's indexed by inflation. Uh, it's a mystery why people don't do this. It beats out any other financial strategy, uh, but 95% of people take it before 65. And, and, you know, some of the reasons is that they think, well, I'm going to lose money in the short term, and maybe, you know, even family members think, oh, I'm going to lose some of my inheritance because that money will be used to bridge that gap. And just to keep in mind, we want to support a long-term vision when it comes to retirement. That's for the people retiring, but also for the family members who are helping them to make that decision. And number two, um, to really have conversations about what happens if. Human brains, we're really hardwired not to think long-term, and we're really not well adapted to thinking about bad things happening to our future selves. But because retirement is such a long-term commitment, you kind of have to have those conversations because otherwise you're going to make bad decisions when you're in the thick of it. 
Thank you for the awesome analysis you've brought on this issue today. It's been great to talk to you, and I appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. It's my pleasure. All right, let's talk about the Doxa Film Festival now. It is Western Canada's largest documentary film festival, returning to Vancouver now starting May 5th. Films streaming online and in real live movie theaters again, which is great to see. DoxaFestival.ca. One of the feature films of this year, Love in the Time of Fentanyl. It is an intimate look at Vancouver's Overdose Prevention Society facility. Let's listen to a couple of voices here from the film. This is Trey, who works there now. He's in recovery. Have a listen. Vancouver is in a state of emergency. People are dying every day from an unregulated, contaminated drug supply. Thousands of people have lost their lives to a drug supply poisoned with fentanyl, a cheap synthetic opioid detected in the majority of overdose deaths. We call upon health professionals, all levels of government, and the public to join us in advocating for a safe supply of drugs. That's Danny, there's Trey featured in the film. Here is Danny, who is working toward recovery, also featured in the film Love in the Time of Fentanyl. Have a listen to this. I was waking up in an alley, and I was a wreck. I ended up in a puddle that night with all my, like, my computer gone, my bag gone, my ID gone, not knowing where 12 hours had gone. And that wasn't the first time that it had happened. And that was when everything just went, I've, I'm done. Okay, some of the voices featured in the film Love in the Time of Fentanyl featured at the Docks of Film Festival. Let's discuss with the director of the film, Colin Askey. Hi, Colin. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Let's talk a little bit about your film. You're tackling some some pretty heavy stuff here. How did you get into this? Yeah, I worked in the in the downtown east side and worked in harm reduction for, for many years and that's where I started uh, filming a lot of stuff for different organizations down there that, you know, needed the, to raise awareness around issues or help better educate people. And I moved to New York in 2016, and that's kind of when fentanyl really hit the streets there. So I was watching from a distance, you know, as, as lots of friends that were working there and friends that lived there were passing away or, you know, losing loved ones. And, and I really wanted to just shed light on the on the issue and uh, it's a community that I care deeply about and means a lot to me so I just you know wanted to to really capture uh, what was happening down there yeah what was it like to work on that film I mean you're right on the front lines here looking at this crisis right in the right in the face here what was that like uh it, yeah I mean it, it was it was tough you know like uh, uh it, it for me is it a pretty you know interesting distance behind the camera and also you know coming as as a visitor to the community uh now that i'm living here it was uh it was tough to see what everything everyone was going through and the effect uh that this you know was having on people like the amount of loss is hard to describe you know people were talking about the the hierarchy of grief that they were having because they'd lose a, a someone they cared about one week and the next week they'd lost someone else and they never felt they ever have had time enough to grieve you know and it was, uh, and it's just nonstop there. Uh, you know, the, the short time I was there, the amount of overdoses being responded to and, and the crisis is just, it's really hard to describe. Yeah. When you talk to the people who were there, who were using, uh, we all know that this drug supply is, is poisonous and, and potentially deadly. 
why do the people continue to, to take fentanyl? Like, was there any kind of common thread that you saw there among the people you, you featured in your film? Yeah, like, I, I think people don't have any other option. Fentanyl has taken over the drug supply. And so, you know, it's hard enough to come off of heroin, let alone something that's that much stronger, right? So the withdrawal and the detox is, is all that much, much more difficult for people. And I think, you know, why people use drugs is really different for each individual. And uh, we need to have different options for, for all those, you know, individuals in each of their path. And also with an understanding now that it's a whole new world as far as the drug supply goes and they need new tools, you know, in our toolkit. Yeah, can tell me about the OPS there, the Overdose Prevention Society. As I recall, near the start of the pandemic, I think they they set up a tent for users, right? And it was, t- and it was um, technically illegal, an illegal facility, right? Yeah. So when Insight won in the Supreme Court versus Stephen Harper and the Conservative government, it was a huge win and meant a ton. But and you know Stephen Harper made it pretty much impossible for anyone else to legally open another site there were so many regulations on it um so at the time when 2016 when fentanyl was you know devastating the community and people were really trying to get this going uh they couldn't and so it was pretty you know the brave bravery of the community and people like you know sarah blythe that said you know what do whatever you're going to do but we're going to do this and we need to save lives and we're going to do whatever it takes so it was was a very courageous uh uh action from the community yeah what do you say to people when they if they're watching your film or or they hear our discussion today a lot of people will struggle with this idea of a like a supervised injection site that it just enables people to take drugs what do you say to them like why why are these facilities important in your mind yeah for sure so i think like for me, I had this, those same reactions when I started doing this work. I come from a 12-step, you know, abstinence-based background and was a mm. drug and alcohol counselor for many years. And learning about harm reduction felt, you know, went away against all those things that I'd learned. And it, it did, you know, handing out even a syringe for me, I had to really question about why I was having these reactions. And I think, you know, I, this is why I think hopefully this film's important and people can see that, you know, every individual is different and especially a community in the downtown East side, uh, the things that the personal challenges that they're battling every day is maybe different than, and I know it's different than what I went through when I was going through, you know, treatment and stuff. So, you know, I, I, I just try and, uh, I, I think hopefully this shows people that, you know, the, the drug use is a complicated drug users are not bad people. And that's, I think there's been a lot of, messaging over the years and propaganda that has told us all this stuff in ways of trying to prevent it. And I think that we, this, we need to look at the reality. We need to look at the evidence. We need to look at the science and uh, especially with fentanyl, you know, it's a different game out there and just saying, well, you know, as a society right now with these laws and stuff we have, we're basically saying that if you use drugs, you deserve to die or if you use, you know, fentanyl, it's your fault. And uh, I think that's a really, uh, that's killing people, basically, that way of, of looking at things, you know. And uh, it, it, it's just like this this place, it's, you know, A, it's keeping people alive, but there's a magic kind of about these places that, that gives people that aren't welcome in any other place in society a place to feel not judged, you know. And so when they do want help and they do want to reach out, 
these are the places they go to and these are the people that they trust. And, uh, and I think this film isn't just, you know, about uh, the harshness of this crisis. It also shows a bit of that magic, I hope, in, in this film and, and the love that's inside these places. Speaking of Colin Askey's, the director of the documentary film Love in the Time of Fentanyl, featured at the Doxa Film Festival. I, I find it really fascinating, Colin, that you, you've gone through recovery yourself. So, like, when it comes to fentanyl and this, the, the levels of addiction that we're seeing, did you see some hopeful stories, like, of people who were able to get off drugs and get into recovery? Um. Well, it's difficult. Like the, I think in the movie, it, it follows, I think, the reality of this issue is that people in the downtown east side, there's, there's definitely like stories like Trey that was able to, you know, that that worked for him. But it really, yeah. you know, 12-step uh, recovery is works for a small percentage of people, let alone if you add all the challenges that people like that are injection drug users in the downtown east side that have multiple challenges such as homelessness, you know, or mental illness and all those these things. It's it's there's there's treatment means different things and i think abstinence as the only answer for people is is uh setting people up to fail so it's great and you know and vancouver is kind of leading the charge in in offering different alternatives in canada and i think that we as a society and we as uh you know decision makers need to really listen to this community and the and the people doing these things and and expand these services Hey, Colin, we just got one minute left here. How can people see the film? Uh, it's going to be on, on at Doxa May 10th and 11th, uh, and uh, it's going to be online. So if you can't make it in person, it is available to people living in Vancouver online. And it's going to be on Independent Lens on PBS in uh, next next year. Wow. Wow, great. Well, congratulations on, uh, on that, and thank you for coming on to talk about it today. Thanks so much for having me.